Well, I think we can all agree this morning that leadership matters. We understand that it matters because the quality of the leadership over any organization or group of people directly affects all of those underneath their guidance and care. Of course, we think of books in the Bible like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles that highlight just how dramatically life in Israel among the people changed depending upon their leader. When godly kings such as David or Hezekiah or Josiah ruled the people, the people largely followed after Yahweh, and God blessed them in accordance with the covenant he'd made with Moses. But it seems that for every godly king in Israel, there were five wicked kings that would arise after them. And when there were wicked kings that led the people, the people went astray. They went into idolatry, and they abandoned their God and his law resulting in God's discipline and ultimately expulsion from the land. And the point that I want us to see in that example is the fact that it's undeniable that the faithfulness of the leadership over a group of people directly affects the faithfulness of the people under that leadership. When we fast forward to the New Testament church, we understand that Jesus Christ is the ultimate leader and head of the church. But, as we studied last week, in an exercise of his leadership over the church, Christ has said that gifted men, elders, are to be appointed to lead in the local manifestations of the universal church. The health and longevity of each local church, then, corresponds to the spiritual health of its leaders. Understand that Christ will never fail to accomplish his plan of building his church. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it and he will accomplish that plan. But he will not tolerate unqualified leadership in his church because when the leaders in the local church are unqualified, it has detrimental effects. The reason that we opened with reading from Revelation is because it mentions that that Christ walks among the lampstands, specifically in that context, seven local churches that he's going to speak to directly through the Apostle John. And to the church in Ephesus, he says this, Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, And will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. It's a sobering reminder that Christ will not tolerate unfaithfulness in his church. With that in mind, how can we at North Lake Bible Church ensure that we remain faithful to our head, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, there are many answers to that question, but one essential ingredient to remaining faithful in the church is being committed to the biblical qualifications for the men that we appoint as elders in the church. We have to be very, very careful not to adopt worldly standards when it comes to the way we assess and appoint men for leadership. We have to bind ourselves to the text of Scripture and follow to the T what the Scriptures say. The good news is God has not been unclear. The Bible tells us very, very pointedly and specifically how it is that we can recognize those men in the local church that God has gifted to the church for this role. 
And so what we're going to see in our text today, actually two texts, is an objective list of qualifications for appointing elders. Remember, we're in the middle of this special series, a biblical understanding of elder leadership. We've already seen that Christ is the head of the church. Last week, we looked at the case for elder rule. Today, we'll look at the qualifications for elders. Now, the qualifications for elders are laid out for us most pointedly and specifically in the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles include First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus. We call them pastoral epistles because Paul is writing to pastors. Timothy and Titus are, were discipled by Paul and then sent out under Paul's authority to go to local churches that they had evangelized and set up on their missionary journeys for a time to pastor those churches and to set up local qualified leadership in those churches before moving on to another congregation. So in these letters to First and Second Timothy and Titus, we have many specific details about Christ's desire for the local church. How is the local church to operate? Even many of the elements that we include in our service, we include them because they're specifically commanded in the pastoral epistles. But alongside those general instructions, we have two lists of qualifications for elders in the local church. One is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and the other is in Titus chapter 1. So what we're going to do this morning is a little bit different. Typically, we're only in one text primarily, but we're going to bounce between these two texts. I'm going to try to help us see the entire list of qualifications that the scriptures lay out for elders. Basically, the theme, if we think about the theme of these two passages, is very simply this. Every local church is to be led by a plurality of qualified elders. And so what I've tried to do is take these two lists, of which there are many similarities, as we would expect, and group those similarities into some categories to help us, in an organized way, work through these qualifications. And so... I've organized these into four categories. Now, before we get into the specific qualifications themselves, let me just give an important word of warning. It's really tempting when we come to a, a passage like this or a topic like this to simply check out. If you're thinking, you know, I don't really ever desire to be an elder, uh, that's not something I, I intend to do in my life, it's easy to think, well, this message really has no relevance to me, and so I'll start planning lunch. But you would be wrong. You'd be deadly wrong. You would miss out on some very important truths. So let me just give you three things to keep in mind as we walk through this text. Number one is that you need to know the biblical qualifications for elders. You, as a member of a local church, if you're a Christian, you need to understand what these qualifications are so that when we as elders put a man or men before you and say that we believe this man is qualified, you know what that means. And when we ask you to give us feedback, encouragement, or any concerns that you may have, you understand what we're talking about. It's important for every Christian to be able to recognize the kinds of characteristics that God has said elders must live out. Secondly, it's important for us to keep in mind that we have to understand the difference between perfection and faithfulness. Perfection and faithfulness. As I've already said in the previous lessons, there's only ever been one perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so when we say that a man is qualified in these areas, we're not saying that he no longer sins or that you couldn't, perhaps if you've spent time with that man, pick out a, a moment or an instance when you said, you know, I think that was, that was harsh or that was a sinful attitude. What we're talking about here is a pattern of faithfulness, that when you think about the sum total of the life of that individual, that they can legitimately be said to be characterized by these qualifications. And we pray in growing measure that will increase, continue to increase in their life. I pray that it's continually increasing in my life. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, you have to keep this in mind. The character qualities listed here are not limited to elders. This is crucial for you to understand. This passage actually will have much relevance to every single Christian in this room because while there are some spiritual gifts and abilities that are only required of elders, the character qualities are actually reiterated in other places in the New Testament for every single believer. These character qualities are what each of us are to be aspiring to. And so as we walk through this list, when it comes to the character qualities required for elders, let me challenge you to not only be thinking about these men that we are considering appointing to this role, but test your own heart. Test your own heart before the Lord and examine yourself and your own character. Now, with that said, let's look at these four categories of qualifications for elder. Qualification number one, or category number one, I've entitled the elder's aspiration. The elder's aspiration. This comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. Here Paul writes, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Now this is interesting because it's the only qualification of the entire list that's an internal qualification. That is, it must come from the heart of that man. He has to legitimately desire not only the office, but the work of overseer or elder. In fact, notice specifically what he says. He aspires to the office. Why? It's a fine work he desires to do. What Paul is saying here is that this is not a man who desires the office because he wants authority in the church. This is not for a man because he says, you know, there's some things going on here and we need to change this up and we need to redo this and so I've got to get myself in that position to make those changes. No, this is a person that desires the office because their heart is wholly committed to the work that the office entails. That means that this person wants to not only oversee the church but to shepherd the church. The work of the overseer is to love the people, to teach the people, protect the people, lead the people, and pray for the people. And so when we talk about a man having an aspiration, we mean do you aspire to the work that will be required of you if you're placed in this position? And it will not simply be going to meetings and making decisions, but being in the lives of the people of God in this church to love and care for them and teach them and shepherd them. That is the work of the office. 
And so there are on occasions men in the church who you may know are, are gifted in their, in their giftedness and in their character. They're qualified to be an elder, but because of the season of life they're in, cannot give the amount of time that's needed to the shepherding aspect of that role. And so they don't aspire to that office. Uh, not selfishly necessarily, but just because of their stage of life with their kids or career, whatever it may be, they understand the seriousness of the role and cannot at that time give the amount of effort that it would take. But the aspiration must be there. Also, as we think about this, it's important to understand that both lists in First Timothy and in Titus make it clear that this office of elder is specifically for men. Notice he says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It says the same thing in Titus, namely, if any man is, and he goes on to give the qualifications. Then masculine pronouns are continued throughout both lists, and in both lists, we'll see here in a moment, Paul says that this man is to be the husband of one wife. It couldn't be more clear that he is thinking of men specifically in this role. Now, let me say, that's not because men are smarter than women. Those of you that are married know that's likely not true. Uh, women are very smart. It's not because um, everything or, or that God somehow elevates men because they're worth more in quality. It's simply because God's a God of order. From the beginning of creation, he has set it up to be this way. Men are to be the leaders of their homes, are to be leaders in the church, and we see them even as leaders in the world. This is how God has designed it to be. But aspiration then to the office is the first requirement. And again, it's the only internal requirement. All of the others will be external in which the church and the leadership of the church affirm that this man meets these remaining qualifications. So let's move on then to category number two, which I've called the elder's home. The elder's home. Now, before addressing home life requirements, in both 1 Timothy and in Titus, Paul begins with an overarching qualification. If, if you want to think of what is in one, one qualification, how can we summarize eldership, it's this. It says, he must be above reproach. Above reproach. This is the chief qualification. It's repeated in both lists. It's, it, he is to be above reproach in his home life. He's to be above reproach in his character. He's even to be above reproach with unbelievers outside the church. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be above reproach? Well, literally the word means blameless or irreproachable. It means that this is a man uh, against whom no one can bring a legitimate charge. It doesn't mean he won't ever be accused of anything. But it means that there needs to be no grounds upon which he can legitimately be accused. After searching that out, he's to be found innocent. He's to be, have character that can be found out to be innocent. Think of Daniel. Daniel's a great example of this. Daniel 6 verse 4 says, Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to governmental affairs. 
but they could, not, they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. These were men that were wanting to discredit Daniel. They did a deep dive into him, trying to find a way to discredit him, and they came up empty-handed because David was above reproach. That's the idea here. Now, with that overarching qualification, he now gives us two areas of a man's home life that are to be exemplary. The first area is faithfulness in marriage. Faithfulness in marriage. Literally, to Titus, he says, the husband of one wife. That's the same phrase in both texts, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Just for clarification, I'm going to follow most closely the order of the list in Titus chapter 1. So if you want to be following along, I'm going to follow Titus chapter 1, began in verse 5, it'll run down through verse 9, and as similar characteristics are given in Timothy, I will mention those as well, so that we'll get a full list by the end. But if you want to follow along in your text, that's going to be the best place to go. Titus 1, beginning in verse 5. Here in verse 6, it says, he must be the husband of one wife. Literally, the Greek phrase means a one-woman man is the best translation of that, a one-woman man. Now, many have tried to, to make more out of this than Paul is intending. Paul's not talking about, ultimately, a man's marital status in the sense that uh, a person who's single is disqualified for eldership. That's not the point he's making. He's assuming here that, that most men will be married and most of them will have children. So he's going to deal with those men in those capacities. But this wouldn't disqualify a man who's single. Nor would it say that a man who's a widower could not remarry. That's not really what's in focus here. What does it mean then to be a one-woman man? Simply it means that a married man must be completely faithful to his wife in every way. He must be sexually pure, devoted wholly to the wife of his youth and his thoughts in his words, and in his actions. They're not there to be those who are, are never characterized by wandering eyes or inappropriate relationships with other women. That's what it is to be a one-woman man. He's committed to the wife of his youth. But not only that, he's to be exemplary in another area. Area number two is faithfulness in parenting. To see this, look at what it says here in Titus, verse 6. If any man's above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, is the summary of the man's qualification in regards to his children here in Titus. It's also mentioned in 1 Timothy, and we'll get to his words here in a moment. But let me explain what this means here. There's actually an unfortunate mistranslation of a crucial word here, and it's the word believe. The Greek word that's translated as believe can also and is commonly translated in the New Testament as trustworthy or faithful. The context is what really determines how the word is to be translated. Uh, just so you know, the, the elders of Countryside Bible Church and I myself all agree that in context, the best way to translate the word here is not believe, but faithful. So that it would read, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. 
To translate it as believe would insinuate that all of his children have had to come to genuine faith before the man is qualified for eldership. But nowhere in Scripture does God lay the responsibility of saving our children on our shoulders. In fact, the salvation of our children is firmly in the hands of God. The man is to be faithful in in, in disciplining and instructing his child in the truth, but the fruit of that, as far as salvation is concerned, is always given to God and not the person himself, not the man or his wife. In fact, we understand this better when we look at the description that he gives right after saying that the children are to be faithful. What does he mean by that? Well, a faithful child here in this context is one that's not accused of dissipation or rebellion. That's how he describes it. So let's talk about those words. What is dissipation? It's not a word we use all the time. It's uh, really describing someone who's involved in wild living. The, uh, the, the definition is reckless abandon, debauchery, or dissipation. And so it's, it's a word that we would use of a person that's known for, for drunkenness, for partying, and for wild living. The other word is rebellion, which simply means refusing submission to authority. A child who's undisciplined, disobedient, rebellious. And so though an elder's child may not come to saving faith, this quality, this qualification demands that even if the child is, is not a believer, that they are under uh, control, they're in submission to his leadership, they're respectful to his authority. But to see this even more clearly, let's look at how Paul says it to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll put this on the screen for you, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, this is how Paul words it. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, in this passage, Paul makes it clear that it's the the management of the home evidenced by having children under control that is the qualification. It's not that his children are necessarily believers at this point, but he's to manage his home in such a way that the children respond to that by being in submission to his authority. But that's not all. Look at how he describes this. He says, keeping his children under control, how? With all dignity. Now, that's a crucial aspect to this qualification. Paul has in view here not just how the children are acting, but how the father goes about bringing that submission to pass. He has to do it with all dignity. Unfortunately, many fathers achieve outward expressions of submission from their children through the means of intimidation and heavy-handedness. And that's the exact opposite of what Paul is calling for here. The elder must be a man who's demonstrated that he can respond to the disobedience of his children by calling them back into submission with gentleness and patience and love, with a gospel-centered approach. You know, far too often we examine a father's leadership or or a, a couple's leadership over their kids only by the outward results demonstrated in the children. But that's only part of what we have to consider because there are sinful ways of bringing that about. We have to also consider the manner in which that submission is brought about. The character of the man is on display and not only bringing about submission, but doing it in a way that represents the character of Christ at the same time. 
which if you've been a parent, you understand is much more difficult. That's the harder part. It's not dishonoring Christ with your attitude as you're correcting a sinful attitude. Now, why is this so important? Why would Paul list this as one of the qualifications? Well, he explains it. He says, here's why this is important. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, listen to the two words he chooses. He uses the word manage and the word take care. He switches to the word take care at the end. If a man can't manage his household, how will he take care of the church of God? By doing that, he emphasizes both uh, qualifications. He has to be a good manager, a good leader, but that looks like caring tenderly for those children and for the church. Think of it this way. A man who rules his children with an iron fist will eventually manifest the same harshness in his leadership towards the sheep in the church. That's why this matters. You can take it to the bank. If he's heavy-handed at home, if he rules like a drill sergeant instead of Christ-like character, that's how he will lead the church. And Paul says, we can have none of that. That is not the kind of leadership that is called for here. And it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it, no elder has perfect children, okay? If you came away with the qualification being perfect children, you've never been around a child, okay? It's not about having perfect children. But generally, as you look at the response of that child to the father, it ought to be one of submission and respect that comes from loving, compassionate leadership. Category number three, the elder's character. The elder's character. Both Timothy and Titus contain a a long list of character qualities that must be evident in the life of the elder. And so, again, what I'm going to do is follow the list as it appears in Titus, but as qualifications are mentioned in 1 Timothy that go along with those here in Titus, I'll mention those to you so that we get a complete list. But read with me in Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. We'll stop there. The way that Paul frames this here in Titus is he begins with a list of negative things that should not Uh, characterize this man, followed by a list of positive virtues. But again, he introduces this list with the same overarching characterization first. The overseer must be above reproach. And notice he adds the word must. He must be above reproach. Now why? Because it says he must be above reproach as God's steward. That word steward is important. It's Kittle notes that it's usually used of a slave left in charge of a master's house or property. Elders don't own the church. I'll say that over and over again. We're not the head of the church. We're stewards. We're like a slave left behind by the master to care for that, that, that household or those people in a way that's consistent with the character of the master. That's our responsibility. 
Therefore, we must be above reproach because we function as stewards over the precious blood-bought saints, the people that Jesus Christ loved from eternity past to the point that he set his love on them and came and gave his life to save them. Stewards over those people. That's why he must be above reproach. But here he launches into these lists of qualities, and we're going to move through these fairly quickly. But he gives five negative characteristics, followed by six positive characteristics. The list begins here with not self-willed. The elder must not be self-willed. That is, he can't be a man who's proud and arrogant. He's to be a man who, or the self-willed man is a man who can't receive instruction. He's proud. He can't take it. He has to have his way. He's always pushing his agenda. That kind of personality is wholly unfit for the office of elder. And that brings up a good question. Where do these qualities come from? I mean, think about it. Of all the characteristics that Paul could have chosen to put on this list, why these characteristics? Well, it comes from the fact that this is how Jesus Christ carried himself in his earthly ministry. It gets to the very character of our Lord himself. Think about it. Jesus Christ is the most exalted being in the universe, God from eternity past, and yet in his earthly ministry, what was the posture that he took towards other people? Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so these qualifications come right out of the character of Christ. Because the church, remember, is to be the blood-bought bride of Jesus Christ, demonstrating the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is on display in the people of the church because they're being radically renewed and transformed by the Holy Spirit through the word into conformity to the character of Christ. So it makes sense then that the leaders of the church are to be men who have been found faithful in these characteristics so they can lead the people to follow and imitate the same. Moving on, not only must he not be self-willed, he says not quick-tempered. Not quick-tempered. The elder cannot be a man with a short fuse. Wisdom comes from Proverbs in this area. Proverbs twelve sixteen says, A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. 1 Timothy adds the qualification here of being peaceable. The elder is to be peaceable. He's not self-willed. He's not quick-tempered, but he's a peacemaker, peaceable with others. Paul goes on to talk about the, the elder's relationship specifically to alcohol. Both lists contain these words, not addicted to wine. Not addicted to wine. Elders cannot be drunkards. They must maintain self-control in general, but particularly, the list says, in the area of alcohol. Now, I have to say this is not uh, to forbid, this list does not forbid elders from drinking alcohol in moderation. That would be to go beyond what's written here. But if the elder chooses to drink in moderation, he is to be a model of self-control in that area that others could emulate, never abusing or misusing or coming under the influence of alcohol to the point of drunkenness. He goes on to describe the elder's disposition. He says the elder is not to be pugnacious. That's a great word. 
Is that one you use often, pugnacious? Pugnacious describes a violent person. It's a person that's always ready to fight. One uh, Greek lexicon translates it as a bully, a person that pushes people around. That quick fuse, certainly if it's mixed with alcohol, turns into a person that's ready to fight. Paul says to Timothy that this person not only is not to be pugnacious, but he's to be characterized by gentleness, the exact opposite. That's crucial in his leadership of others. The elder also must be above reproach in his relationship to money. Here it says in Titus, not fond of sordid gain. But in Timothy it says free from the love of money. The same idea. Free from the love of money, not fond of sordid gain. Sordid gain is, is, is accumulating wealth through sinful means. It's used to describe false teachers later in 1 Timothy chapter 6. They, false teachers use the platform of being a pastor or elder to swindle money from the people. And Paul says that's absolutely unacceptable. Don't put a man in leadership who has a love for money or who has a love for sordid gain. Now he turns in Titus from negative qualifications or attributes to the positive. He turns here with the word but. These things should not characterize him, but in verse 8 he says, but he must be hospitable. Hospitable. Now, hospitable is listed in 1 Timothy as well, chapter 3, verse 2. Hospitality at the time that this was written to Titus really meant something different than it typically means in our context today. It, It was really referred to of opening your home to strangers, which is still a form of hospitality today. I don't mean that it's not. But I mean that was the primary thought that came to mind when you heard the term hospitality. That was really important in that culture because there weren't a lot of public accommodations and the inns or hotels, as we would call them, that were available were typically dangerous and unsanitary. And so it became a form of of Christian virtue to care specifically for other believers as they were traveling through your town to open your home to them for the night so that they didn't have to go to those public places especially for traveling ministers. There were those who would come, like Titus or Timothy, coming to visit the churches, and the elders were to be known as those willing to open their homes gladly to those people and to care for their needs. In our day and age, that typically plays itself out by the elder being one who is is generous with his resources and his home. He delights to have people in his home, uses his home to be a blessing to others. Moving forward, he adds to the list, not only is to be, he to be hospitable, but loving what is good. The elder is to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. We think of Philippians 4.8 in this regard, where Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's the kind of mind and lifestyle that's to characterize the elder. He's also to be sensible, Paul says. Sensible is the word temperate in 1 Timothy, but both have similar meanings. It means to be in control of oneself. So it could be said as prudent or thoughtful, sometimes self-controlled, although he's going to say that specifically here in a moment. 
And so I think the idea here is closer to, to temperate, sensible. It's a person who acts wisely. He thinks before he acts, thinks before he talks, thinks before he speaks, thinks before he makes a decision so that his manner of living is one that can be followed legitimately by others in the congregation. In addition, he's to be just. The word just here means what you would think it means, upright, fair. It's to be in accordance with high standards of rectitude. He cares about what is right, treating people with fairness and with justice, not taking advantage of God's people, but shepherding, shepherding them fairly with patience. Paul adds devout. He's to be a person who's, who's holy, who's wholly committed to holiness. He, he, he truly loves the Lord Jesus Christ and pursues him with all of his strength. When he fails to do that, he must be quick to repent and continue on in that pursuit. First Timothy adds the word respectable here. Think of it, a person who is sensible and just and devout is a person who garnishes rightly respect in the congregation. Now he adds the word self-controlled. First Timothy says prudent, which means essentially the same thing. Self-controlled or prudent is to have one's emotions, impulses, or desires under control. The idea is he's to live a disciplined lifestyle. Paul describes himself this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, when he says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The elder must be self-controlled. Now finally, as we close out this list of characteristics, 1 Timothy includes two more characteristics that are omitted from the letter to Titus. So let me give those to you now. This is 1 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7. He adds, And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, first of all, he must not be a new convert. Why is that? Paul says if you move a new convert into this office too quickly, it will tempt him towards being conceited. It will tempt his pride. And this can happen because perhaps a person comes to Christ who's very intellectual and very intelligent, and they study quickly. They're a quick learner. And so within the course of a year, they've learned a ton of theology and a ton of verses, and that can seem like spiritual maturity. But spiritual maturity is not just about knowledge. It's about wisdom, the application of that knowledge to everyday life. And that takes time. That's what we call spiritual maturity. And so the length of time that a man has been a believer is important. What's interesting is the scriptures never give an age requirement. It never says a man must be this old to be an elder. The age requirement is more related to the length of time that he's been in Christ. So that he's a man who's demonstrated spiritual wisdom and spiritual maturity. In addition to that, finally, he's also to have a reputation of being above reproach even with unbelievers outside the church. And you might say, well, how does that work? Think of it this way. But especially at this time, most of these men would have had full-time secular jobs. As 
what we, that's what we would call a lay elder today. All that means is they're, they're not employed full-time by the church, but they have the same role within the church. And so think of it this way. If, if, if a man is appointed as an elder in his local church, and when his co-workers find out, they're all saying, really? That guy? They put him as an elder in that church? Man, they don't know that guy. This is what Paul is talking about. Even unbelievers understand the difference in a life that's above reproach and a life that's not. And so even his, his unbelieving co-workers and neighbors and family ought to say, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense because that's the way he is here too. And so the idea is he's not living a double life where he's living a respectable life in the church, but then living a double life in, at home or at work. Now, did you notice, as we went through that list, as I warned you before, the vast majority of those qualifications are listed elsewhere in the New Testament for every single Christian. That's how all of us are to be living. You know, all too often we think that elders are called to a moral standard that goes beyond what God respects of the rest of the body. Now, elders are called to a higher standard in the sense that they have to be actually living these things and maintaining these things or elsewise they're, they're disqualified. But the actual commands themselves, by and large, are the exact same things that every single Christian ought to be pursuing. And so as I test myself, I would admonish you to do the same. You know, my prayer is that North Lake Bible Church will be full of people who meet the character qualifications of eldership because they're simply the character qualifications of a mature Christian. Not all are, are gifted or called to the office of elder, but every single Christian is called to the same moral standard because Christ is that standard. And so if you've been tempted to think, man, I don't want to be an elder because uh, that list is just, it's just too much, it's too steep. Understand, the same list, by and large, applies to every single Christian. So let me just ask you, how are you doing in your pursuit of holiness? Is there any area of secret sin in your life? Men, are you a one-woman man? Are you allowing yourself to look at things and think on things that are ungodly? Are you self-willed or are you gentle? Are you peaceable or are you pugnacious? These same things apply to each one of us. May we be a body of believers, men and women, who seek to meet these character qualifications. But there's one final category, category number four, that is specific to elders, and it's the elder's giftedness. The elder's giftedness. You understand spiritual gifts are given by God according to his will. They're not a reward for faithfulness. They're simply a gift of God, and you either have those gifts or you don't by God's sovereign choice and design. But God says when you're looking for elders in the church, you've got to look at their character, and then you've got to look for specific spiritual gifts that God has sovereignly given to them for the benefit of the church. First Timothy says the elder must be able to teach. Literally, the word means skilled at teaching. But here in Titus... Paul fleshes out his meaning even more fully. So I want you to read with me verse 9. This is Titus 1 verse 9. He says, Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, 
so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. He says, holding fast the word. This quality of teaching is not just an ability to speak truth, but it comes from a heart that is committed to the word of God, that loves the word of God, that, that is, is, is compelled by the word of God, that is holding fast, will not let go to the inspired and errant word of God. And that holding fast and love for the word then produces two things, Titus says, or Paul says to Titus, so that he will be able to do two things. Here's the first result, to teach God's people the truth. That holding on to the word leads to the exercising of the spiritual gift of teaching. He's, the way that Paul says it here is he's got to be able to exhort in sound doctrine. The word exhort means to urge strongly, to appeal, to encourage. That's the idea here. His devotion to the word mixed with the giftedness to teach that God has given him compels him to exhort God's people with the truth, to know the truth to love the truth, and to obey the truth. While there are many things that elders do, there is none more important than teaching, teaching the scriptures. This, by the way, is one of the, it really is the primary difference in the qualifications for deacons and for elders. Deacons are held to the same uh, character standards, but they're not required to have the gift of teaching because their role doesn't demand that. It's a more of an administrative role whereas elders are demanded to teach the word, to exhort in sound doctrine. So to be an elder is to be a teacher at some level of the scriptures. We see this even in Acts chapter 6. Many believe this to be the passage in which the first deacons are chosen. There's some debate about that. But we see this pattern in, in Acts 6 beginning in verse 3. It says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Prayer and the word are the two primary means through which the elders serve the people of God to equip them for the work of ministry. We'll talk more about that next week. Sound doctrine here obviously refers to that doctrine which is true and right, and elders must know the truth then and be able to exhort the believers to follow it. But there's a second result. It's not just teaching on the positive sense, but he also says that elders must protect God's people from error. Protect from error. He says here in verse 9, holding fast the faithful word so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Not only must the elder be able to teach the truth, but he has to have both the knowledge and the tenacity to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with anyone who would seek to corrupt the church through false teaching by adulterating the gospel or teaching false doctrine. Now, elders are not to go around. It's not our job to correct every false teacher on the planet, okay? So I'm not going to spend every Sunday up here poking every false teacher in the eye that exists. But it is the elder's role to protect this body, one, from internal uh, false teachers that may arise and begin to teach false things. The elders must lovingly but swiftly deal with that for the health of the body and for the sake of that individual who's teaching that falsehood. But secondly, sometimes there are false doctrines and false ideas that, 
sort of take hold in evangelicalism as a whole and begin to threaten the local church because they've become so popular. In those cases, the elders have to instruct the people in what the truth of God's word is to protect the body. And so it is both positively holding fast to the word and exhorting with the truth, but also being willing to stand when others are seeking to corrupt the truth and harm the church. I love the way that Calvin talks about this passage. John Calvin says this, The pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. Just as the faithful shepherd fights off wolves that threaten the sheep, the elder must be willing to refute those who threaten the church through teaching a false gospel or false doctrine. This, of course, is driven by love for Christ, love for Christ's people and his word, but it nonetheless must be pointed, it must be swift. And above all, the elders are to teach the people the pure, unadulterated truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That glorious truth that we are sinners who deserve the wrath of God. That each of us have gone astray and God would be right to punish us for all eternity. But the Bible says that God in his grace and kindness has sent to us his perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we failed to live, to die as a sacrifice on the cross, and to rise again in victory over death and sin. The Bible says if you'll repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope of salvation, then you will be saved from the wrath of God over your sin. This is the gospel that we love and we preach and we live in accordance with. And if you're here this morning and you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, then I would beg you, to recognize your sin and the beauty of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross and turn to him today in repentance and faith. The elders have to champion that truth and challenge any who would add works to the gospel or any other thing that would adulterate the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Now with that in mind, I'm going to put a graphic on the screen just in case you lost track. This is an exhaustive list of all of the qualities that I just went through. You'll see Timothy's list on the left and Titus's list is lined, list is lined up to, to match um, each of those qualities. And you can see I've tried to put those uh, qualities that are either exact repetitions or they mean essentially the same thing on the same line so that you can see that. But let me also go to a next slide. It's the same list. But here I've highlighted these according to the categories that I gave to them. So there are four different colors here that represent the different categories. Now, you don't have to answer out loud, but just take note which category is most often referenced. It's character. By, not even by close, right? Now, that's not to say that, that, that one qualification is more important than another. There, a man has to be qualified in each of these four categories. But it is to say this. How many times have men been elevated to positions in the church because of their giftedness with no thought to their character? Why is it that the church is so often hurt and broken because of leaders 
uh, mis- or using their, their, their leadership in a way that's harmful or abusive to the people, falling into different kinds of sin. Now understand, we are all sinners, and, and I, I'm not standing here saying I'm above falling into sin. I ask you to pray for me in that. But, but why is it that this is so common in the church? One of the primary reasons is because too often we put more emphasis on giftedness than character. A man has to be gifted to teach the scriptures, no doubt, and to defend the scriptures. But he must equally be recognized for his character. And so my prayer is that we would never be a church that elevates giftedness over character, but that both would be equally cared about, prayed for, and sought after. Now, with all of those things in mind, I want to ask two things of you. The first one is this. Pray for our leadership. Pray for us. Pray for me. Pray for the two men that we are considering this month, for Wade Grubbs and for Drew Michael. Pray that God would hold us fast, that he would keep us firm in our love for the Word of God and our commitment to Christ and the Word of God. Pray that we would be men of character, both in private and in public, that we would be men who love our wives and love our children. Pray that God would keep us from the evil one. That we would be pure. That we would remain sexually pure in our thoughts, in our actions. That we would be far from pride and the love of money. That we would be genuinely men of character. Pray for us. We've seen enough of churches destroyed and hurt because of elders falling into sin. And we're telling you, I'm telling you honestly, we are not above that. We desperately need the grace of God to hold us fast. Please pray for us as we seek to love and pray for you. And we trust our Savior to hold us fast. But we do covet your prayers. Secondly, examine your own character. Examine your own character. As I've said, God's not called us all to be elders. He's not gifted all to serve in that way. But he has called each of us to be deadly serious about pursuing the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. To hating sin. To making no provision for the flesh. Fight for it. Fight for your own purity and your own fidelity to our precious Lord Jesus Christ. So that when he brings us to himself... And we see him as he is. We trust then that he will make us completely as we ought to be. But may we not be ashamed for lack of effort towards these things. And God, may we be a church both in leadership and in membership that loves the word of God, that loves Christ, and that pursues his character. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, These are weighty things. They are heavy things. We look at that list, and it is daunting. And it's only ever been completely and totally fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that after having lived a life that perfectly modeled those things, you then offered that life to pay for our sins 
so grateful for your love for us. But we ask, God, that you would help us all to be serious about our pursuit of holiness, to be serious in our love for Christ and his word and our pursuit of him. God, help the leaders of this church to remain faithful and steadfast and help each and every member of this church to excel still more in their pursuit of Christ. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.